This is Language Made Difficult, an omnitemporal part of the SpecGram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Keith Slater. Great to be with you. Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. And Bill Spruill. Hey. Also joining us again on the program is Tim Pouliou. Welcome back, Tim, and thanks for visiting with us again. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, what made you want to come back again? Uh, so, I was taking a nap in my office, as usual. I do most afternoons, but I slept a little later today. And I came out and I saw you guys sitting in the studio over there. Uh, so I wandered in and you asked me to leave, but I refused. So here I am. Okay, well. <laughs> See, I knew there was a perfectly legitimate explanation. In that case, welcome. Thank you. He didn't, he didn't even bring pizza or anything. <laughs> All right, so let's start with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. So I've got three language-related items. Two are true and one is false. And you have to figure out which is which. The first item is... Before the Waluwara language of Australia became extinct, speakers made a point of replacing English technology loanwords like computer, laptop, and mouse with their French equivalents, ordinateur, portatif, suri, because they sound better. Item number two. About 90% of the lexicon of Albanian is borrowed from other languages. Item number three. Among the Biwat of New Guinea, cannibalism was acceptable if the person you ate spoke a different language. All right, who'd like to go first? Keith. <laughs> Well, I hesitate to go first because I know the correct answer, but okay, uh, sure. Okay, well, never I'll mind then. I'll just ruin it for so, everybody uh, else. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> all right, Bill. Let's see. These are all kind of believable. The about 90% of the lexicon of Albanian is borrowed from other languages. It's hard to rule that out simply because what if we find out 95% of the vocabulary of Proto-Indo-European was borrowed from another language? Who knows? That would make Albanian borrowed by transitivity or something. <laughs> Among the Biwat of New Guinea, let's see, the cannibalism thing, that also makes sense because that's sort of like they don't speak your language, so they don't count as people or something like that. I'm assuming it does not mean that it was okay, that they were producing the language while you were eating them because that, that would be worse. I am going to say the false <laughs> one is the one about Warluwara because I don't think that if you have not been heavily acculturated by the French, you probably would not think the French words sound better. Oh, all French words sound better, except when they're coming out of French people's mouths. <laughs> it's universally accepted. Well, I hate to have to agree with Bill, but I'm afraid I do agree with Bill on this one. Partly, I mean, it sounds unlikely that people in Australia would uh, think of the prestige of the French language. The Albanian one, there actually is a dearth of native Indo-European words in Albanian. In fact, it's really hard to figure out all the sound laws for Albanian because there is such a dearth of inherited vocabulary. So I don't know if it's 90% that's borrowed, but it could be. It's extremely high, so something around 90%. So that one sounds right to me. And then the Biwat, who were the people who had that prion disease where they ate each other's brains in New Guinea, Kuru or something like that. And the point of those New Guinean people was they ate people who spoke the same language as them rather than other people. So I'm wondering if that's typical of cannibalism in New Guinea, that you eat people who speak the same language as you and not people who speak other languages. In which case, I'm going to guess that the Biwat following that pattern also used to eat each other rather than eating foreigners, which is much more distasteful. I think among New Guinean languages, there's kind of a dearth of eating foreigners. 
It's much more common in places like the Aztecs, where they would eat the foreigners to show their superiority. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go with the Waluwara. Yeah, and again, I think they're going to find in Australian languages probably a dearth of words that are borrowed from French. Sounds a bit odd to me. Okay. Keith or Sherry? Mm, well, okay, I'll go. So I've decided that I have a new strategy for these. So Trey, when you say 90%, do you mean exactly 90% or do you mean, you know, sort of around 90%? Is it, is it metaphorical or do you really mean 90%? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a metaphorical large, you know, like umpteen or something. It's not just a random large number. It is not particularly precise. It's not exactly 90%, but around 90%. So in the article that you read this fact in, was the 90%, was there a source there for that? There are sources. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> well, I thought if I badgered him a little bit, maybe he'd cave. And <laughs> so true facts have sources. Untrue facts have other sources? Well, my follow-up question was going to be, was an online source or something in some moldy book somewhere, therefore having more credibility? Uh, it is neither online nor a moldy book. So you made it up. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> perhaps hmm. I've said too much. <laughs> hmm. Or perhaps not. You know, the trouble with this is it's really easy to double think this kind of thing. Okay, so I like the Waluwara story. Because I'm thinking about syllable structure, and I'm thinking about trying to say laptop, which is hard to say. And so if there was an alternative around, and I was feeling tired, I might just go for a little French, because you just kind of go whoa, 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 when you speak French, right? And that's easy. You don't have to put any of the consonants in at all, regardless of whether they're there or not. And so if I'm looking for an alternative to the English, I think I'm going to take that. Let's see, the B-Watt. I like that story because it makes me feel a little better about cannibalism. And it's been a long time since anything made me feel a little better about cannibalism. <laughs> so I'm going for that because I figure if they're strangers, you know, maybe there was some misunderstanding. Maybe they didn't really mean it. If you're eating someone that has just recently said to you, hey, hey, cut that out. And you understood. I don't know. So I like the idea that they would speak a different language. There was some horrible misunderstanding that led to the cannibalism. Mm. So, so the one I don't like is the Albanian, not just because Trey seemed to have a dearth of reasons to support this, and I was suspicious of his answers, but I don't like it. Okay. It seems a little outrageous to me, and besides, I think he blinked. So. <laughs> All right, Keith, what's the correct answer? <laughs> okay, well, I just made that up. I have no idea. But I, Well, wait, I do have an idea. So it's a universally accepted fact about English and French, that French sounds better. So I totally believe that someone would say, we want to use the French words because they sound better than the English words. That's just true. Now, the Albanian, 90%, that's probably an exaggeration. And there'd be a couple of different reasons to make an exaggeration like that. One is that you're a contact linguist and you want to get a paper out of it. <laughs> Another is that you're an Albanian who's concerned about purity of the language. That's another. And there'd be some other reasons. But even though it's an exaggeration, I completely believe that someone has made that exaggeration. So I'm going to say it's true. Now, the Biwat one about the cannibalism, this one I'm convinced has got to be false. And here's the reasoning. I can believe that someone would only be allowed, that your code of ethics would only allow you to eat someone who spoke a different language. Okay. But anybody who had a code like that would he very quickly extend it also to people who spoke different dialects. And so I think this is stated too strongly. I think you would be able also to eat people who spoke different dialects. So I think you've tried to trick us on this one. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. Since Bill and Tim agreed, let's start at the bottom and work our way up. 
The cannibalism claim uh, is true, according to Margaret Mead. Very well. Ah, see, I knew it was false. false. (laughs) 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 And I think maybe, Keith, your reasoning was a little bit unsound there because there might be a dearth of dialects because the group is so small that speak any particular language in New Guinea that there just wouldn't be a large enough group to split into dialects. I wouldn't be surprised if all the people who spoke the same language as you were actually people you personally knew. Ew, yeah, see, so you don't want to, yeah. Yeah, given a sufficiently small group. And you don't want people you personally know. Well, that's a different rule entirely. I object. That's my hypothesis. It's not the original claim. <laughs> so the next one, item number two about Albanian. I don't know the exact figures, but I was, Tim agreed, right? Tim even kind of halfway explained it. That one is true. <sighs> Reportedly, as few as 200 modern Albanian words made it all the way there in a straight line from Proto-Indo-European. I knew from Tim's explanation that that must be true. Tim, do you know anything about the history? Yeah, and there's early borrowing from Greek, and then a lot of borrowing from Latin, and then from Slavic languages, and then from Turkish. Martin Hold's book on the vocabulary from about 20 years ago, I think he only had 150 words in it. So yeah, there's not a whole lot of inherited lexicon there. Wow. I'm not sure if it's fair to use actual knowledge to answer these questions, is it? (laughs) Well, there's a faster way to do that. As long as Middle Albanian would not be mutually intelligible with Modern Albanian, we could say a very large proportion of Albanian is borrowed from Middle Albanian. (laughs) We could if we had any Middle Albanian. (laughs) Well, there's your problem. And so, (laughs) much to my surprise, Two of you fell from the one I made up about the uh, (laughs) speakers of an Australian language deciding to replace their technology words with their French equivalents. I did choose a language that I think it's extinct. (laughs) Well, no, I saw one report that was like severely endangered that was like from 10 years ago. And then I saw another one that it was extinct. I was like, oh, that's sad. But they were, you know, it had lasted long enough that they probably did have, you know, all the field workers with their laptops would be around. They need a word for that. So it seemed plausible. It was highly plausible. <laughs> it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. <laughs> now to the important part, which is the scores. So the great news about the scores is oh. that I got a point and Sherry lost a point. <sighs> so now I'm in the lead. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, everybody. And with 59%, Sherry and Bill have 53%. Tim, you did well for the guests. The guests collectively are up to 46%. Keith? <laughs> You're about to get cut from the team. <laughs> Your batting average is only 35%. <laughs> what am, I down to now? am I down to 30? 35, 35. <laughs> if that's a batting oh, average, that's, that's pretty good. So, well, that's, that's better true. than guessing, right? Yeah. By oh, 2%, no, it's not. By 2%, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come to think of it. <laughs> All right. So now that we've got the important stuff out of the way, now we'll have a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with some language news. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Nordic Journal of Avian Languages of the Southern Hemisphere. The Nordic Journal is proud to support Speculative Grammarian and reminds listeners everywhere that we need your article contributions because, as the saying goes, birds of a feather publish together. Okay, welcome back to Language Made Difficult. And now it's time for some language news. A recent research publication claims that there are differences in how children learn languages. 
and that those differences may be attributable to the discourse structures of the languages themselves. You thought your child was different? No, maybe it's your own discourse that's different. Now, previous studies have shown that children learning English master new verbs more quickly if they hear them with associated nouns. So, for example, it's easier to learn the verb ride if the child hears something like the cowboy rides the horse rather than if the child only hears something like ride it. Korean is a language that often omits nouns, so the normal pattern is to have verbs without many overt participants. Sudha Arunchalam and five collaborators studied how children learn new verbs in Korean, and they found that, unlike English-learning children, the Korean-learning children learned new verbs faster if there were fewer overt participants. That's how they're used to hearing the language, and that's the pattern that makes learning more effective. So, Ling nerds, what's up? Does this mean that prodrop is an incurable illness? That children learning a prodrop language are pretty much predestined to keep the language that way? Doesn't this suggest that discourse patterns can never change? Or maybe you have a different interpretation. Well, I think they've just sort of misinterpreted what they're looking at, mainly because the idea that there's like a basic human predilection to learn nouns first is something I find theoretically attractive and therefore must be true. So (laughs) here's what's actually going on, obviously. What they're analyzing as verb forms are actually nominalized participles modifying with a zero head verb after them. Now, the Mm. mistake they made was in not carefully analyzing the series of null elements at the ends of the forms they're looking at. Because if they did that, (laughs) they would have found the participial suffix, then they would have found the nominalization suffix, which attaches to it, And then they would have found the conjunct form that puts it in relation specifically to a null auxiliary. You know, I like that explanation because I think that, I mean, I I know that I have a lot of zero suffixes in my own speech and my kids learn to talk really early. So I'm pretty sure that's all true. Did they learn nouns or verbs? Well, they learned it all. Well, anything I put zero suffixes on seemed to be learned faster as far as I can reconstruct. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say I have a different take on this. The thing that disturbed me about this is that, to me, it looks like uh, clear evidence if we ignore the Spruill hypothesis, which I think we can safely do. It looks like clear (laughs) evidence of communist subversion working its way into Seoul. Um, So the the young children uh, in the Korean study uh, were children from the Seoul area, which, as we know, is not too far from the DMZ. And if you think about it from a point of view of ideology, In communism, you want to eliminate the individual and only have the action and the person doesn't matter from the point of view of development of history. So from that point of view, getting rid of the objects and only having the events would be crucial. And I suspect that the Kim Jong-un government has been sneaking people into South Korea to try to get that communist ideology into the minds of the children there. Now, now that Kim Jong-un has disappeared and possibly been executed by somebody else, for all we know, I think they should redo this study and see if it changes back again in a year or two. And this explains why the North Koreans are so malnourished, is so that they're of smaller stature, so that they can actually replace babies with like seven-year-olds who've been trained to influence the other babies? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I think that's clearly right. Although Kim Jong-un himself was not very malnourished, as I remember. (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) No, but he may not have spoken correctly either. 
That's true. It's also, I'm a little disturbed just by the bias against North Korea whenever they're talking about Korean in these sorts of articles. They talk about Korean as if South Korean is the only real Korean. And who knows what they're doing in North Korea? I mean, did the people doing this research attempt to sneak into North Korea so that they could attempt to conduct research there? And if not, how dare they publish their results as if they applied to all of Korean? Hmm. For that matter, did they test among the Chinese Korean population, which is also substantial? Yeah, I see no sign that they did. I would point mm-hmm. out that you Chinese, actually read the article. Has, Chinese has a very large number of null affixes. <laughs> In Just fact, about all of, of Chinese affixes are null. <laughs> yeah, most of the inflectional <laughs> morphology is null in Chinese. So That's true. <laughs> but not so in Korean, Bill. Not so in Korean. You mean phonetically null, but not syntactically null. Well, of course not. They, <laughs> they cannot make your theory work if they're not there. Right. <laughs> I had a slightly different take. What? Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it's happened before yeah it'll happen again so i don't know if you guys noticed but the so-called senior author who's not the primary author but the senior author on this article was sandra waxman uh, who did the study on the lemur screeches that we talked about recently oh somehow i failed to notice that connect so like the lemur screeches i think this is just sort of a manufacturing (laughs) of things to do research on because it seems to me that they sort of omitted the obvious unified abstraction which somebody sort of alluded to it before, which is basically that the languages are different. And then so they have different patterns. But what children do is they learn to expect certain patterns. And when they encounter utterances that don't fit those patterns, they don't learn as easily, right? You know, that just makes sense. Whether it's you're used to verbs that kind of show up by themselves, and it's kind of weird if one shows up with a bunch of noun phrases attached, you don't really know what's going on, or the opposite, you're used to there being noun phrases there. And so now when the verb shows up by yourself, you're like, what the heck's going on there? You know, like, so, for example, in English, you know, there's it's raining, right? And that looks like it's sunny or it's hot or it's windy or it's a rhinoceros. You're not really expecting a verb. So things are weird. <laughs> yeah, I think there are two different hypotheses that would be much more interesting to try to figure out just taking that sort of higher level view that, you know, kids are basically expecting certain patterns. And the question is, are the kids smart enough to recognize that the unexpected syntax is a sign that things are atypical or are they so dumb that their pattern detectors just fail and they go, oh, gibberish. <laughs> So, you know, in that case, you'd expect the kids to be puzzled. So, like, the Korean kids would be puzzled by an action with extra noun phrases accompanying it, either because in the dumb scenario, it's too complex and they can't parse it, or in the smart scenario, they're wondering what's special about that subject and object that need to be spelled out. I know, Trey. I mean, that makes really good sense and everything. But again, what does it do for Bill's theory? And I think you really need those zero (laughs) affixes. And I want to ask you where your loyalties lie here, seriously, because my goodness. I don't think it's incompatible with the zero affixes, right? That's just part of the syntax that you're recognizing, right? Or failing to recognize. So if you're used to a language which has a bunch of zero affixes, and then suddenly they're not there. <laughs> it always does disorient me when people speak without their zero affixes. I right. always kind of think, ooh, man. You know, as, a, as an ESL teacher, I try really hard to make my students master those zero affixes first. And they do. You know, I say, how are you? And they go, and I think, good job. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was zero content, not zero affix. <laughs> well, it's, sometimes the zero affixes, yeah, you just got to follow the whole thing. Sometimes the zero affixes are more powerful. If you've got the right zero affixes, what do you need those spoken roots for? You can get by with a dearth of roots. Yeah. yeah. Now that you've raised this issue of the author and everything, I want to know if there were lemurs involved in this. <laughs> 
because yeah. number one, right. It, it, right. Were the nouns that were missing always lemur? Well, I mean, you imagine this kid <laughs> trying to learn stuff and looking over and there's this lemur staring right back at you. I mean, that's going to mess up the study. You know, actually, they could have conducted this study and the lemur study at the same time. There could have been lemurs screeching <laughs> while the children were acquiring these new verbs and nouns. I guess it's just the verbs in this case. Now, that would suggest that Trey's second hypothesis that the children are very smart is true, because if they could acquire language even when lemurs are screeching at them and possibly biting them, that's a sign of high <laughs> intelligence. But what and I was wondering, Trey, is what is your own opinion on this matter? Do you think that 24-month-old children are stupid or are they smart? Because you gave us those two options without saying what your suspicion is. Well, I know that my 24-month-olds <laughs> were very smart. <laughs> Just in case, smarter they, than everyone else's, probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, well, except Sherry's, of course. Of course. Same general category there. And mine. Oh, right. <laughs> 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 no, of course, the linguist children in general would be in the smart category. No, I don't really know. Um, that's why I think we should test it, is because I don't really have a hypothesis. Because twenty-four month olds, they're both. They seem both incredibly smart because they're acquiring language so fast, and incredibly dumb because they still poop their pants sometimes. I have a concern anyway. Did someone look at the, the entire article? Because I confess that I perhaps had a dearth of free time and did not. Look at in what sense? Okay, thank you. That's all I really wanted to know. Because I'm worried about the human <laughs> subjects component of this, because if they did have lemurs and children in the same room together and the lemurs and children did not speak the same language, then those lemurs could have eaten those children. <laughs> 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 I want to know if they were ready for well, that. Uh, if they were in North Korea, the children may have eaten the lemurs. <laughs> I do have to say that despite the fact we're making fun of the research from the same person twice, I don't think there were ever actually any lemurs <laughs> with the kids. <laughs> well, I think there that. were, and I want to know, and I think <laughs> this is the final question we need to consider here is, we've seen now two experiments that were apparently done at the same time to save budget, right, on human <laughs> subjects. So the question is, what is the third experiment which was being performed at the same time that we haven't found the results of yet? I mean, we're going to find the article on the other test they were doing at the same time. What was it? <laughs> wow. I think they were trying to teach lemurs middle Albanian. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have a dearth of evidence for that. I believe that is the correct answer. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that's about all we can say about this article. So... Let's have a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Endowment for Applied Phonology. The Endowment for Applied Phonology has been entrusted with a $50 million grant to fund research that applies theoretical phonology to real-world problems. Since receiving this endowment in 1999, we have not yet identified a single research project that satisfies this simple criterion. Please help us to spend our money. Propose the first project in applied phonology today. Lo and behold, ladies and gents, welcome back to Language Made Difficult. It's time for a little show and tell with our favorite linguistic baubles, bangles, and beads. We've put our blood, sweat, and tears into searching far and wide in every nook and cranny, mixing and matching the best bits and bobs of this, that, and the other into a wild and woolly segment we call Randomata. It's time to rant and rave about our favorite language facts and figures and discuss with a little back and forth and plenty of give and take. So let's start the discussion. The first to stand and deliver is Keith. Okay, so for uh, the random facts I thought I would bring up today, mine all, all have to do with historical linguistics, and in particular, 
semantic change. So the first one is, and you guys will all know this, but some of our listeners may not, the word egregious. Tim, no answering. Does anyone know the history of the word egregious in English? Well, since I was told that I would know it, I was looking it up. <laughs> uh, eagles I see. And I do now. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So the interesting thing, egregious comes to us from Latin. Tim, feel free to jump in. Egregious comes to us from Latin and etymologically means something like out of the flock, but meant distinguished or extraordinary in a good way. And the meaning has flipped from something that's extraordinary, as in really good, to something that's extraordinarily bad. That is literally the most interesting thing that has ever happened. It's the same Greg as in gregarious or congregate. Wow. Oh, the There you Greg. go. And it means flock, correct? Yeah, flock or herd. Grex. So instead of saying egregious, we should say things like, that's unflock-like. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were failing to rise above the flock, what would that be? You would be... Engregious? <laughs> Subgregious? Subgregious. Subgregious. Wolfgregious? <laughs> Simply egregious. Well, wouldn't that be just like of the flock? I mean, we're going to put you below the flock, right? That would be of in the flock. I like malgregious. Can we have that? <laughs> Since the word's only going to last till the end of the podcast, you can have anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to use it as many times as I can. Okay, that was that one. You want a couple more? <laughs> Nothing malgregious, okay? <sighs> <laughs> I think we have sort of a dearth of words based on Greg. Yeah, that same root is in, I think it's in Agora, probably, the marketplace in Greek. It is. Hmm. It is. It is. So it meant like to gather at some earlier time. Hmm. Yes. In Indo-European, it must have been something like gather. Yes. So I also have one that's sort of historical linguistic-y. And this is the fact that in Spanish, the word for cousin is primo, uh, which comes from Latin consubrinas primus, meaning the first cousin. You can see, obviously, how that got shortened to just primo, which is first. And so now the word for second cousin in Spanish is primo segundo, which is the second first. I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. No actual cousins involved. <laughs> no cousins were damaged in the making of this word. <laughs> Though their feelings may have been hurt because they got kind of left out. Perhaps. So I've got another word origin one that I think is kind of interesting. And I think people maybe all know this, but you know where the word soccer comes from? No. Yes. Ah, so it's an interesting clipping. You want to tell us about it, Tim? It's the association football. Really? What? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I see it. Originally, wow. soccer was, there's rugby football. And then to contrast, there was association football. FIFA is Federation uh, International de Football Association. There you go. And I think this is based partly on the print version. So it was clipped in print to A-S-S-O-C. And people didn't want to clip it off the way you'd normally clip a word, which is to just go with the beginning. So it would have been something like assy ball or something. <laughs> and so first they clipped the very end and then they clipped off the beginning too and left with soak. But I think it must have been based on a spelling pronunciation of looking at the word S-O-C. Right. Yes. But it's Otherwise also... you should have had so-sh-so-sh-so-sh-er. Have you read the book, The hmm. Outsiders? But no. Classic young high school. Book. Young high school. In high school, book, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, but I do not remember it. There's <laughs> a group of kids in there who are rivals of the main characters, who are the Soches, spelled S O C. S-O-C. Right? Yeah, um, S-O-C, but pronounced Soch. Oh, interesting. See, I forgot that. So, although soccer should involve kicking a ball in your socks, it does not. It's from association. <laughs> Though they do wear some pretty interesting socks. <laughs> they wear boots, not socks. Hmm. 
In my house, we just call them soccer socks. <laughs> can you do that? <laughs> I can and I do. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't have a good one. And I was going to point out that slide comes from slith plus a frequentative, which I heard somewhere recently. I can't think where that was. <laughs> but I, so I was going to steal that from wherever it came from, but I decided not to. I've observed an odd sort of phenomenon amongst sort of young people on campus lately where it's not in terms of endearment, but it seems to be real life nicknames that they share. So two people have the same nickname for each other. Mm. This just strikes me as very odd. You'll hear someone say, you know, hi, pen, hi, pen. And it'll be just something like that, just something very odd, just some random syllable. And it's not hi, sweetie, hi, sweetie. That's interesting. Does each pair have their own name? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's idiosyncratic. Wow. It's weird. And I've never seen this before. And then I thought back in time and I knew another couple who were not a romantic couple that had a similar nickname for one another. And it appeared to be a real live nickname that you would capitalize a proper noun. And it was absolutely reciprocal. And they didn't have like similar names or anything like that? No, it wasn't like, you know, two people named Chris who were, you know, a pair or anything like that. No, it was absolutely reciprocal. Mm. And you're sure it's not just some derogatory word that young people are now using and has a horrible meaning we just don't know? (laughs) No, I'm pretty sure. Well, you never can tell with that, of course, but I don't think so. Yeah, but if it's idiosyncratic to each couple or each each couple, yeah. yeah, then... Never underestimate the ability of people to coin new derogatory words. True. I mean, I guess I could always just pick one. But, you know, every pair of friends picks the insult they're going to apply to each other. (laughs) And it's never like, hello, you, Thurg. Right, right. You know, or anything like that. It's just, hey, Thurg, hey, Thurg. That is weird. (laughs) I think this actually originated with one of the one-time editors of Speculative Grammarian named Donald Rindel. (laughs) His wife, whose name was in some pronunciations, Gorn Rindel, but in more advanced pronunciations, their names were homophones. And therefore, they addressed each other as Don and Don, or at least I addressed them that way. <laughs> they did not address each other that way. And nobody called poor Don, Dawn, except <laughs> characters on Saturday Night Live who were supposed to be from New Jersey. Yeah. But I think it probably began with those two. And because speculative grammarian has been so influential on the language and culture in general, it spread from <laughs> them to the general population. And people do have the cot-cot merger. And then has made its way at least to many college campuses among the <laughs> hip young people. I'm quite certain that Bowling Green is a hotbed of Specgram followers. <laughs> Real quick, my favorite fact about Don and Dawn is for Halloween one year, they both dressed in all black and had different colored bow ties on, and they went as a minimal pair. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, <laughs> which they were in. But that's sweet. Yeah. That is sweet. <laughs> all right. Who wants to go next? I have one observation, but I have checked it. The use of the phrase, when it comes to, is inexorably increasing. Hmm. I suspected this when it showed up in just about every paper I graded recently. (laughs) But in the past, occasionally (laughs) that has happened, and I have looked, and lo, there has been steady use, but I'm just now noticing it. But based on a check on Google Ngrams and the corpus of contemporary American English, it is, in fact, increasing. I don't know if it's statistically significantly increasing, but since it supports my observations, I think we can just assume it is. Hmm. 
What if it starts taking over and replacing <laughs> other things? That would be sort of scary. And at least the sample, the highly scientific sample that I was observing, it was basically the default choice for topic introduction at the beginning of sentences. So it's kind of like the sentences are topic comment constructions and you use when it comes to as a topic marker. So I got a quick question for you, Bill. Do you do that? I hope not. Okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. Well, no, I was just going to say maybe it started with you and your students are all copying you because they say, well, hey, if you talk like the professor. Perhaps your students are, are um, <clears throat> what's the polite way to put it? You know, they want to get, they want to make a good impression. Sucking up? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a dearth of emulating the other things I say on answers. Okay. You mean like the right, right answers? Right, exactly. Right. So if they're picking that phrase up, there's a lot of other stuff they're not picking up, so... Okay. I think that's only because they don't know what the word adumbrate means, and they're afraid to ask. <laughs> well, I've kind of foreshadowed it. I mean, I've given them hints and everything, but I haven't really defined adumbrate for them yet. Back to when it comes to... I think it's a useful phrase because it's somewhat longer than uh, yes. as, for, or as far as and gives you more time to think about what you're going to say. Not unlike John Kennedy saying, well, let me say this about that, which sounds a little more intelligent <laughs> than saying, um. <laughs> it seems to me to be the case that. That's yeah, but couldn't they be those. saying things like in consideration of or, you know. If they're super smart 24-month-olds, then they would recognize that pattern and they would start saying it, right? <laughs> Who do you have in your class, Bill? Uh, people. <laughs> Not lemurs. They're not lemurs. I was just thinking that they could use lemur calls to introduce their new topics. <laughs> that would serve a good function of getting attention from the rest of the class. Yeah, in a live presentation, that would, number one, it would provide more actual information than most business presentations, <laughs> let alone university <laughs> committee minutes readings. Um, <laughs> And would serve to wake everyone up. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have a, a random fact that I just learned, like in the last few minutes, which is that some people pronounce adumbrate as adumbrate. As it should be. <laughs> well, the first dictionary I looked at actually has my pronunciation as the first one. No, adumbrate is supposed to mean to berate a dumb person, which is a completely different word. <laughs> I do like that meaning. But <laughs> hmm. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we've had this kind of discussion before. Okay, I'll let it go. And it's never led anywhere, has it? So I have another one that I thought I'd bring up. You're familiar with the term piecemeal in English? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You always wonder why it has, what's it got to do with meals, right? Is it like a bunch of dishes that don't go together or something? Does anybody know the origin? No. So this is a case where the second part of the word meal is retaining a meaning of meal that fell out of use. So meal, if you look at German, it still means two things. It means meal as in instance of sitting down to eat and just an instance. So a time for something. Huh. Uh, so an instance of something used to be the same word in English, but it lost that instance meaning and is now only an instance of eating. So piecemeal means a piece at a time, one piece Per instance, per instance right. rather than doing it all as a whole. Hmm. Yeah. So that's a case where that's a frozen form that retains an older meaning that we lost otherwise. That's cool. I like those fossilized forms. That's cool. Aren't those neat? Yeah. Yeah. There's a dearth of those. <laughs>
<laughs> I don't think that's true. I think that we're just no. there's a dearth of awareness about those. Oh, yeah. That's the truth. There's a dearth of awareness. And I think that we're all going to get rich someday writing a book about them. <laughs> so that must be the May route to, to measure. Probably. It, it's, would that be mas in yeah, Spanish? Yeah. It has the right form. May is, yeah. yeah. There you go. It's the dative plural of mal. Yeah, but it should be Indo-European May to measure. Yep. Proto-Indo-European May low from root May to measure. Okay. Also in meter. Oh, so meal and measure are related words. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, I guess the instance meaning would be a measurement of time. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. I've got another quick one. Uh, this is just sort of a weird thing that I realized. <laughs> At work, I actually have a meeting that is biweekly in both senses, in that it happens twice a week, but only every other week. Isn't that quadra-weekly in some kind of <laughs> quite... I thought it would be bi-squared weekly, yeah. That's semi, <laughs> semi bi, what? Uh, semi. Yeah. It's semi bi weekly, yeah. I think that should involve like <laughs> right. epicycles or something, shouldn't it? <laughs> it it kind of does, yeah. It's a fractal. <laughs> Your meeting is orbiting a temporal object, which is orbiting you. That's what's going mm. on. <laughs> so every other week, the object it's orbiting is near you. Right. That's actually pretty close. There is a sort of a cycle <laughs> of the two bits of the meeting, and then that cycle comes around every two weeks. So. This is like, you know, those languages that focus everything on tense. So that's the first thing kids learn to say is the tense node. Hmm. Interesting. Which language are you thinking of? Uh, the ones that we haven't recorded yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So in the old days, when the Olympics, winter and summer occurred, in the same year, instead of alternating every two years now, what would you call that sort of having two Olympics, but every four years instead of two meetings every two weeks? Is there a good term for every four years? Quadrennial. Okay. Quadrennial. So quadrennial. It's the quadrennial by... And then, so it'd be quadrisemiannual? That no, sounds like probably, the name of kind of virus. You probably need something for a pair, so it's like a quadrennial pair, right? That doesn't have enough suffixes on it. It has a dearth of suffixes. Well, it will by the time we get finished with it. <laughs> but since it's Olympics, should it be Greek instead of Latin? Oh, that hurts. Yes, indeed, it should. Oh, That's so going to be tetra, more of a challenge. Tetra. What's the word for year in Greek? Last year is kenos, or previous. Well, it's probably just tetrennial then. But what's the word for a pair of things in Greek? Is there, I know, a modern English dyad, but that sounds like something somebody put together in the 19th century out of Greek or something. <laughs> Little leftover bits of Greek they had laying around. Right. Actually, in Greek, you could just use a dual. <laughs> make it a dual form of a word. Well, unless you can give us a dual form of the word, we should probably move on. So, tetra Baham. That's catchy. <laughs> you just use Sanskrit. That is dual. Tetra yeah. and Yabam. Throw in some yeah. Sanskrit. Sanskrit dual is something like Baham or Biam or something like that, isn't it? No, those are, well, in, in some cases, yes, but not in Okay, in, in the right cases. Yeah, we could make it dative, I guess, or ablative. Okay, we'll work on it. We'll <laughs> get the interns working on it. <laughs> Send us a report by Thursday. <laughs> The best words are in Heliscript. <laughs> I would like to add one thing, which oh, is please. I just looked up Adam Bright in the OED, and it has Adam Bright. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it doesn't have, hmm. 
Well, I looked it up in what dictionary am I using here? Random House. And that's right, folks. This is your example today of linguists both using a dictionary to try to support their positions. <laughs> I don't have to be right. I just have to not be wrong. So I'm happy. They mentioned that the, I think, New English Dictionary, it's in period E, period D, 1884, gives the pronunciation as a dumbrate. But you don't see the NED around much anymore, do you? <laughs> I think you should just go with adumbrate. <laughs> the NED is the OED, isn't it? Is that what they mean? Well, then why don't they call it that? <laughs> That's, that was its official name, the New English Dictionary on Historical Principles. Ooh. Schooled. <laughs> yeah, except they changed it when they fixed the pronunciation of Adam Bray. Yes. They're like, oh, we're too embarrassed to have the same name of the book that had that mispronunciation in it, so we better change the entire name of the book. Hmm. Well, I would try to get away from that. You know, I mean, all people remember about it is that they had a dumb Bray in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that I didn't remember anything else about it, so. <laughs> all right. I guess that's all the time we have now for a Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guest, Tim, for hanging out with us. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Join us next time when we'll look at the unrest among sociolects that results from inequality among noun classes. But I didn't realize there'd be a quiz later. <laughs> There's always a quiz later. Yeah. It's what linguistics is all about. We quiz each other on dialects and pronunciation. Yes. Can you get the memo? <laughs> If they studied Shigudo, I'm sure that it would turn out to be adverb-friendly. The first item is... Before the wall... Uh, uh, who comes up with these names? 24-year-olds are both... They seem both incredibly smart because they're acquiring language so fast and incredibly dumb because they still poop their pants sometimes. And now you, think, you don't notice... You said 24-year-olds. I think it's funny that you made the same speech error that was in, that, in, the, in the press, <laughs> press That's release. That's right. <laughs> That's so awesome. 24-month-olds. Yeah, sorry. If they're super smart, super, I can't even say it. I'm trying to figure out now if Sherry's an AI, would the ukulele be a bug or a defense mechanism? It's a feature, sir. It's an enhancement. <laughs> I mean, it does limit interaction. So from that standpoint, it would be a defense mechanism. But you totally have to pay extra for that. You have to go down. Now you have to go on iTunes and totally pay extra for that. It's an in-app purchase, if nothing else. <laughs> Turning the ukulele off? <laughs> <laughs> did you guys hear about the chatbot that passed the very low bar for the yes. annual Turing test? No. A non-native speaker 13-year-old. No. Oh, did I? What was it? Wow. Yeah. It's supposed to be a 13-year-old, like Bill said, Ukrainian boy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it's online chat. And they only have to convince 30% of the judges that they're human. Who's the first one to do it? It's totally a cheat. <laughs> That's what I think the ukulele thing would be for. It's kind of like, oh, this conversation's getting a little too complicated, and I'm not sure my answers are very good. Break out the ukulele. Break out the ukulele. They run away. Quick, distract them. Yeah. They'll start dancing and throwing coins onto the stage. <laughs> I'm waiting for the next contest like that, where the bar will be trying to figure out if someone who is trying to emulate a chatbot is a chatbot. Only a chatbot would think of that. Well, that's a point. That's a point. <laughs> I think it would be pretty easy to pretend to be a chatbot because there's some very characteristic failure modes of chatbots. Yeah. And you just throw those yep. out there and you would, mm. you could emulate Eliza and just any question, just respond, tell me about your mother. <laughs>